0: You're listening to What She Said with Candace Sampson, a podcast for Canadian women, about Canadian women. A mansplaining free zone, What She Said is here to empower, educate, and entertain you. Today's episode promises to stir your soul as it delves into human resilience and the profound might of forgiveness. Picture this, a day brimming with joy and aspirations, only for it to shatter into pieces in an instant. My guest today endured just this, when a mere month into her marriage, she was faced with the appalling revelation that her husband had perpetrated horrifying crimes, including the rape and kidnapping of two women. Yet the essence of what we are about to delve into is not anchored in the tragedy, but in the metamorphosis from victimhood to empowerment. A phoenix rising from the ashes, she breathed life into the wreckage, evolving into a guiding light for countless others with forgiveness as her compass. Through books, art, and the spoken word, she advocates fervently for restorative justice, her story serving as both healing and a spark to kindle the fires of recovery in others. Her indomitable spirit demonstrates the boundless strength that can ascend from the abyss of anguish. As we weave through a tale rife with agony, love, sacrifice, and the crowning glory of human triumph, prepare to be captivated. Meet Shannon Maroney. Hi Shannon. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi Candace. Thanks for having me. It's funny because we're, you know, we're recording this podcast today, but we're meeting in real life tomorrow, which feels a little backwards.
1: <laughs> I, think, I think it's just a new world order.
0: <laughs> so can you start by giving us an overview of your personal story? and how it led you to become a trauma therapist?
1: Sure, yeah. I was actually a high school counselor um, in 2005 and had been for a couple of years and, and very often worked with youth at risk, youth in the justice system and so on. Uh, you could experience trauma, um, but I uh, really, the direction of my work took uh, a big shift when I experienced my own personal trauma. Uh, that and that all and also involvement in the justice system. So I had just turned 30 in, uh, September of 2005, uh, married, uh, my someone who I would say was a soulmate, Jason, uh, on Thanksgiving weekend. We were very grateful for our lives. Jason had a difficult past history. He had committed a serious offense as a teenager, uh, served time in a prison. And have been living safely and successfully out in the community for several years when I met him. And I became uh, the cultist part of his amazing second chance at life. So when we got married, we had a lot of reverence for, um, for his past and what he had done and also a uh, view toward the future and so much support from family, friends, and community. And most of all, we just had a wonderful, wonderful relationship. Uh, So we married on Thanksgiving weekend, and a month later, I was uh, attending a counseling conference for work when a police officer came to my door, uh, the door of my hotel room, and told me that my husband, Jason, had uh, called 911 the night before asking for help because he had brutally sexually assaulted two women. Who were customers in the store where he worked part time? He was a recent graduate of art school and was working on portfolio. And uh, then he had kidnapped them to our home. I'm
0: sorry. I am just. I am just in shock. Listening to this, you must have felt so detached with that call.
1: Um, that's an interesting term. Uh, I've. I don't know if I would say detached. I, I, I felt just an extreme shock, uh, horror. I really didn't even have, I mean, maybe I had a split second to think that uh, it wasn't true, that there was some sort of mistake. But when yeah. he started looking called 911 himself, I knew there was some the mistake. I had spoken to him on the phone the night before. Uh, whenever I was away traveling for work, we always had a ritual of tap at 10. And so uh, when I called him at 10 o'clock the night before, and um, actually he he didn't answer right away. And I thought, oh, it's, uh, it's garbage night. He's taking out the garbage. So I called back and he didn't quite sound like himself. Uh, and I asked him, are, are you feeling okay? And he said, actually my stomach's a little upset. Don't worry, you know, just tell me about your day and tell me about the conference. And I teased him, I actually said like, Mm, have you been eating junk food all weekend, miles away? Not in my worst nightmare could I imagine what had actually happened that would cause him to feel unwell. Let alone have any way of knowing that as I prattled on about my time at the conference, and uh, I'd actually seen a keynote speaker that reminded me of Jason. It was somebody who'd really overcome a lot in his life. Could I have imagined that simultaneous to that, there were two women who in any other circumstance could have been my sisters, friends, colleagues, uh, neighbors, that they were in my home, in the basement of my home, uh, suffering in pain and sear, injured, and also being incredibly brave in talking with Jason and... Essentially rehumanizing him and then by talking to him about well, photos on the wall, do you have a, a girlfriend or is that you have whites, with artwork and so on, to the point that he was able to actually apologize to them and go to a, a pay phone close by and make that my mom on call. Uh, and um, that happened also after, after I spoke with him. So I think we all played a role. Then... Uh, the victims, you know, bravely and, and knowing what was going on in me unwittingly just by calling and I think praying a, a piece as as Jason later told me and grounding him and bringing him back to reality and back then. So you get this
0: call from the police. I mean, you must have just felt like you were outside of your body getting this call. I can't imagine how you would have felt. What happens next?
1: So actually in person that the police, uh, the officer was at in My hotel room, like, he- oh, okay. I was at this conference, so um, you know, really in that moment, uh, with the police officer there, and he was so kind and he he waited with me. I he first asked me to call the sergeant up in Peterborough, uh, to understand more fully because this officer was from the Toronto Police Force. Uh, we lived in Peterborough, but I was in Toronto, so conference and um. So I needed to call that the sergeant couldn't tell me very much, but he said, we need you to come back right away. We need to interview you. Um, And so then my next call was to my parents. Uh, My mom is a retired kindergarten teacher. She has that lovely voice. She answered the phone. Hi, Shan, how's the conference going? I said, get dad on the phone. Uh, Something terrible has happened. And I remember, you know, when they came to the police officer waited with me and you know i remember saying to him because i was still the counselor you know I, I that was my role that i was used to and i remember saying to him how are you this must be terrible for you having to deliver bad news like this because you just can't make such a a extraordinary reversal of roles so quickly, So I was still the helper. Well, immediately, though, I was going to be the one that was going to need so much help. And uh, I looked out the window, I ha- I saw the airport and it was like, the whole world was still continuing to move planes were landing. there was morning traffic, but my world had said come to a, a sudden and crashing halt. Uh, and I had an image come to mind as though a stone had flown up and and hit that, hit a windscreen, hit the window actually of the hotel where I was. And I watched it with that same helplessness that happens when that stone hits your windscreen and you just have a second to think, you know, maybe the whole thing won't crack. And then you just watch that violent sneaking as everything shatters. And that was the image that I had in my mind. Uh, and that image eventually came to be on the front cover of the book that I wrote a few years later, called Through the Glass, which really, exactly, you know, it is uh, a double entendre in the way that it, it speaks to that shattered glass, that broken glass, and my journey to make some sort of mosaic out of that, uh, and also uh, refers to conversation I then had in the coming days and weeks and months with Jason True prison blast. Uh, because I, is the only one who had answers to, to the questions that I had. How could you do this? Why, why, what was going through your mind? Why didn't you tell me something was going wrong? And um, it, it was just so critical to have to be able to have those conversations and, and um, it played a big role actually in my healing process and also led me to advocate for restorative justice which really is that victim offender title
0: so from the time that this happened then to the time of you becoming a trauma therapist what was the time frame of that
1: oh well um (laughs) i uh you know what happened immediately after those crimes is i went from that the first day or you know the day before where i was uh respected educator and guidance counselor and homeowner, newlywed, volunteer, my community, all those positive and and bad titles. The next day being the wife of a sex offender, having my house on the front page of the paper, the title monster appears in court uh, and bearing the burden of horrific stigma and judgment by many, not by all. And thank goodness for the people and and, uh, he, he, you know, stood by me and walked with me through this journey. Um, one of the worst things, if not, you know, there were so many terrible things that happened in the ripple effect of violent crime. Vine. Uh, for one, I learned that I had also been a victim of voyeurism. Jason had put up a camera in a home and filmed me and, and many other people on various occasions in the bathroom. Uh, I had to identify all those victims, watch all those videos. And then I was given official victim status in the justice system, even though I would say that is the least way in which I was victimized. Um, what happened was that my job was taken away from me my school board superintendent principal in a reentry meeting to discuss how I would come back to work, um, said, how could you be a good counselor when you were married to this guy? Um, people are saying. Uh, it's too difficult to see you. And they actually banned me from entering my school, um, wow. their permission. And then said that I would be relocated outside of town when my doctor said I was ready to come home, which is a modern day shunning. I didn't think that that happened. Uh, there were a lot of things that I could never have imagined happening, both in the justice system and in community um and uh i went home that day and was then diagnosed with ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder i had no more pay i was put on leave uh without leave without pay i had benefits for a very short period of time and that was really the the biggest of the secondary trauma so i believe that education always opens doors when doors are closing and somehow, in the fog of that unbelievable pain and trauma and and fear you know just so much fear i was afraid to go to the grocery store i didn't know who i would see how people would react to me Um, and uh so i somehow applied to do master's degree uh in social work uh and uh and then also i don't really remember this part but i applied for a fellowship uh, for international study, which I was given. And so I went to England, I had to do a master's degree. And there I studied trauma, I studied restorative justice, and um, also got to be away from my community that I had loved and invested in so much and, and be somewhere that I could be anonymous. After that, I moved to Toronto, the trial, Jason's trial huh, amazingly went on for two and a half years, even though he had been well, one himself, he had given the, the, lead detective told me he'd never seen that before in 20 years of sex crime investigation, that Jason had given a statement that was an exact match, the statements of the victims, were it not for the pronouns. And that he had, he said at the end of the statement, um, you know, essentially, um, should put me away forever. Um, and had, and this included also full confession and, and statement of responsibility and it still took two and a half years for him to have the opportunity to plead guilty in court and for anyone to give a victim statement a victim impact statement and then all that happened at the end of that day so for this is 2008 by this time is that on that day of sentencing um we listened to the victims give their statement and you know my family and I just we just cried for them. I was never allowed and never been allowed to speak to them, uh, offer them our help, which we wanted to do from the first moment that we found out what happened to them, we were quite alienated from them. I was told directly by, get this, a victim services uh, counselor who I was allowed to see because of my official victim status, that he really wanted nothing to do with me and didn't think I was deserving of any help, when I asked her, please, is there anything we can do for the victims? And, and she just said, they don't need to hear from Jason's arena, uh, and go home. I gave a, a victim impact statement. Um, my mom gave a statement. She'd also been a victim of the voyeurism. Jason gave a statement of accountability and apology. The judge gave a statement when he gave his ruling and all that happened at the end of that day and at the end of two and a half years was that one person went sent to prison for the rest of his life and everyone else was sent home and that was it and there was nothing for anyone and i just remember thinking what a ridiculous statement it is let justice be served because in that experience i could see that nothing was going to be served to anyone the only thing that would be served was the sentence and that justice and healing was going to be up to each one of us. And you walked home with a sentence of your own, really. I did, yeah, you know, which I really just had to make a decision that it wouldn't be a life sentence of PTSD, stigma, shame, shunning. I didn't think I deserved that. Uh, And I have responsibilities people to love me. I love life. And I had to believe that there was something beyond this, this trauma. And, and two, witnessing, you know, I've, my book, through the glasses, really a book of two journeys. One is my personal journey through grief, loss, stigma, shame. And the other is as a journey, a, a, a journey as a witness on the justice system, my criminal justice system, which was just shocking. As a citizen, it was just shocking to see how it worked how it doesn't work and I just knew that w- after I w- could heal myself or you know I'd done a lot of healing work I think since day one of this journey um mm-hmm. that I wanted to do something help others and that was the only way that I could make any sense out of the senselessness of everything that happened.
0: victimhood then Uh, And there are people that it does become a life sentence for them. So how did you sort of break free from that? Was was it a series of steps? Was it through intense therapy um, mindset? What was the what was it that pushed you through that so that it wasn't your life sentence? And and how can people who are feeling like they have a sentence of their own break free of that?
1: You know, um, you know what I learned about being a victim is that the V stands for a bunch of really bad things. It stands for um, violated, um, vulnerable, voiceless. Voicelessness was a huge thing for me. Uh, feeling that I, I you know, I, I never got to stand up for myself, um, and so, and and even vilified is another really bad V. So I knew that I needed to turn those Vs around and reclaim my vibrancy, uh, find my voice. That was a huge, huge healing factor for me, finding my voice on the page uh, and in terms of writing, uh, as well as in terms of speaking and becoming a keynote speaker, guest lecturer at universities, um, that finding a voice helped to vindicate me when I could, when I could share what had really happened. From my perspectives and shift what the assumptions were by so many when they heard that, for example, I was going to visit Jason at the jail. And as I said to you, that was yeah, I deserved to go and get the answers to my questions as much as possible. Did you get the answers you wanted? I got many of them. I got many of them, and then you get to a place where you have to accept that there are things that you'll never understand. Um. And many of the our conversations are recounted in, in, in my book and, and, and in other and writing, um, which I felt it's so important to share and give that nuanced version instead of, you know, what was being said or rumored about me with like, oh, she's, it's stand by her man. She, you know, the sort of, what aesthetic loser uh, this woman is. Uh, that real, you know, uh, the vilification, as I mentioned, the, uh, judgment that befalls especially a woman, Uh, women form the vast majority of victims of crime, uh, and men form the vast majority of people who commit crimes and are incarcerated. Uh, So that for me, reversing those V's, finding that voice, um, making a difference, being vindicated, uh, was a huge part of my healing process. And then engaging in as much therapy as I could. Uh, You know, right now, we don't have any public funding for therapy. Uh, Many other health services in Canada are covered and not yet mental health. And so this is something that I really advocate for, um, you know, because what's interesting is that when we take care of our mental health, we also resolve many of our physical symptoms of stress and trauma. Um, so, uh, I did whatever I could. I had a wonderful family doctor, uh, who really became my main therapist. And I, I still see her, uh, a few times a year because even when you get your PTSD well into remission through all of these things, she actually had me do art therapy. She offered me two different prescriptions. She offered me antidepressants, uh, or, um, canvases on which I could try to express outwardly what I'd gone through uh which was a wonderful I took back the scription because um, I wanted to look through the worst um and come out the other side and try to create something beautiful from something so awful. Uh so she was a real hero of mine and we got my PTSD well, well well into remission. Uh, and uh, you know it can still it it can still be triggered to come out uh from time to time. Uh, and I think a lot of people will recognize that when we have grief and trauma that we do so much work as much as we can. And we all like life continues to happen at know. And so uh, we have maybe a little extra vulnerability for those symptoms to come back, but you learn how to get them right back into remission as soon as you can. Um, the other thing that helped me, you know, I think a lot, I, I, and I work a lot with my clients. I have a resilience building uh, and what, The various different R's are that go into resilience. So it's responsibility is one big thing, taking responsibility for your own healing Uh, and, um, you know, recognizing that it's not really right. I mean, the person that did all the damage should be the one who has to clean it up. But, you know, in my experience. Oh, you are (laughs) preaching to the choir, sister. I.
0: I am cleaning up a big mess here. So anyway, yeah, so I'm not the focus of this podcast, but trust me, I know where you're coming from on
1: that one. (laughs) You know, that was a huge realization too for me about the jail and prison system is that, of course, they work to protect society from dangerous people for as long as they're locked up, but they also protect those same people from facing up to what they've done. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jason or take let alone taking part in any sort of amends making or responsibility taking restoration. Jason was in solitary confinement for nine months and there were times when things were so terrible and frightening and painful in the outside world as we refer to as an inside world and outside world for me that I wanted to trade places with him. I wanted a quiet cell where someone would put three meals a day to a squat in my door so I could just think and and be protected i wanted protective custody mm-hmm. and i thought jason should have to come home clean up the mess like literally clean up the mess and there yeah. was you know police when they search your home yeah. they make more of a mess than there even was with the crime scene and all of that i was responsible for cleaning up and and asking a generous amazing colleague to help me when he said please can i and he helped me clean up the crime scene. Uh, you know, there, so there was that physical cleanup to do, and then there was the emotional cleanup. I thought Jason should have to answer for himself. I'm out, out you know, being asked and, and being judged and uh, all sorts of things, ask questions that I don't have the answers to that he does. And it just seemed, witnessing that and experiencing it, this was just so wrong. Um, you know, so I, I that I think my my journey I mean you originally asked when did I become a trauma therapist as a really you know a building path I counsel a lot of people once my story went public I just heard from hundreds thousands of people that have been through either something similar family members of people who offend uh victims of crime uh you know just people who Want to know that whatever they had gone through, if I could get through what I was getting through, they could get through what they want to get through. Um, and did a lot of counseling. Um, I developed a workshop, um, with uh, a close friend and colleague of mine whose husband had been murdered. And, uh, we called our, F- our workshop the F word on exploring forgiveness and what it means and what it doesn't mean. We traveled across this country and even internationally mm-hmm. to help people explore. Uh, that's new. And what is my favorite F word? I like the other one too. I'm not
0: going to lie. <laughs> well, I, that is my favorite F word, but um, <laughs> I have a lot of favorite F words, but uh, forgiveness was not one. And I think people hearing your story for the first time today who are listening to this are probably surprised to hear that forgiveness is a huge theme in your mm-hmm. work. <laughs> so that's pretty controversial. It well, it is, I think, because forgiveness is is hard to give to somebody that's wronged you. So what role did it play in your healing journey and why is it so important for victims to to embrace that F word?
1: Yeah, I think you know, the first thing I want to say is that I have never and will never forgive what Jason did. These crimes are unforgivable. The human being behind the horror is forgivable. I was very fortunate. Jason made forgiveness a lot easier for me because he was so accountable uh, and so remorseful and so apologetic. Uh, He even became the first person in Canada to accept the dangerous offender designation without a separate sentencing hearing as a way of uh, showing his, his highest level of accountability by choosing himself and prison for the rest of his life. And we don't always have that. We don't always have people who are sorry for what they did to us. My school board, I tried to engage them in a sort of dialogue. I wanted healing from that because the repercussions of having been so stigmatized as well as even financial repercussions on me Uh, Going from having a salary, being a homeowner, to to living on a tiny amount of employment insurance and and all sorts of things. They had no remorse, no accountability, totally unwilling to have dialogue with me. And it really, um, in in that case, like I had to find what I call abstract forgiveness, which is forgiving. Someone or an institution or an organization that isn't sorry, that doesn't know what they did, that doesn't know the impact, that won't engage in dialogue, and I, I found that harder. Um, but the thing that I you know know most or have learned most about forgiveness is that you know people do criticize it. Sometimes they say, "Well, that's letting someone off the hook," or that's being a pushover. I know that forgiveness can help uh, set boundaries. Close a relationship just as much as it can reopen one or mm-hmm. help in the relationship taking she? Um And I also know that forgiveness does mm-hmm. let someone off. Um, it's the curse of offers it. And in the end, you know, even though at one point I offered my forgiveness to Jason, which he was unable to accept, I don't know that he has even now, 18 years later. Um, but in offering that gift to him, it was really the greatest gift I could have given myself because it was a way I, I found if, if you picture, you know, being on a hook, like a, like a fish on a hook, you know, who is in charge? Who's in charge of you? It's whatever you're hooked on, the anger, resentment, rage, blame, all those things. And for me, forgiveness just became the word that I could apply to a more graceful process of unhooking. Myself from all of that, all those energy and soul sucking forces, resentment and anger. Oh, so and you can still
0: you can still forgive somebody
1: and demand accountability. Oh, absolutely. These things for me go absolutely hand in hand. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and you may never get the accountability, right? But you can still find the forgiveness, right? And then in in it's it's letting. It's, it's opening up options for yourself. I mean, the thing about being a victim or being really harmed or whatever word you want to use is that someone has taken control of our lives without our permission. And so the healing process becomes about getting the reins of life back in our own hands. And so when we forgive someone, that's, that's a choice that we have. Only we have the power to forgive someone else and in a sense, forgive ourselves for even for being victims even though it's not our fault you know uh, we often associate forgiveness with fault but it's so much uh more nuanced than that because and in with my clients that I work with most of whom are have been victims of crime victims of violent crime uh, now in my practice as a as a formal official (laughs) trauma therapist that have been for several years with with my own practice um, I hear people say all the time when, they, when they're recalling things even from childhood or things that have happened the belief that is held somehow is it's my fault um, yeah I was weak I should have known better I was naive I you know shouldn't have been in that place at that time um, and even sometimes we just want to take on the fault Because the other person won't take it, you know, uh, the person who actually caused him. So we take it on ourselves as a way almost of getting control, but it's a very negative control. So when we forgive ourselves and we say we are free again, we're free to live, we're free to trust, we're free to take another chance, we're free to have our grief, um, and we're free to feel joy again. Uh, then that's very very empowering. Let's talk about big T and little T
0: traumas. I feel mm-hmm. like I this is just observational, of course, uh, but it feels like the world is traumatized right now, <laughs> and it's 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 messy. So, how do you define the difference between a big T and a little T trauma? And
1: what are some approaches to deal with those or treat them? Yeah. Um, great question. So big T trauma is the one that everyone knows. That's what I went to. Sure. Police officer arrives at your door. Uh, there's been a car accident. Um, your, your spouse, uh, cheats and everyone knew about it. Uh, you're in a war. There's an earthquake. Those are big T traumas. They're easy to recognize. Little T trauma, uh, is made up usually of a series of small hurts or slights or hurts and slights that we get used to over time, but they build up and they can result in the exact same effect in terms of PTSD or CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. It usually begins in childhood. So we can look at things like oppression, racial uh homophobia, uh, things like that, bullying, where people are sort of putting up with uh, these daily or weekly or you know however it, it plays out um, hurts. Um, they form the same types of beliefs, beliefs as forming major trauma, like I'm powerless, I'm voiceless, I'm not in control, I'm not worthy, I don't deserve love. These types of things, and when we hold those beliefs, for the worst part of trauma is what we come to believe about ourselves the longest term. In addition, of course, I'm saying that reverence for our obvious losses or loss of life and loss of home, things like that. But it is in terms of psychological damage, uh, what happens in trauma is that we have bad thoughts that can be about ourselves that can become beliefs. And so when people believe, come to fundamentally believe about themselves, let's say by uh, being a victim of racism and constantly having to operate in a world that is uh, not friendly or not nearly as friendly to you or welcoming is that you might grow up to believe I'm not worthy, I'm less than, uh, I'm voiceless. If you hold those types of beliefs, beliefs for whatever, so maybe your parents for alcoholics and never took care of you, uh, we make decisions in a very different way, but if we believe I'm not worthy or I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough. Then we make, if we believe I'm good, I'm worthy, I can make mistakes, these types of positive beliefs. So trauma therapy really is about uh, transforming your negative beliefs back into positive beliefs about yourself by coming to terms with what has happened, by reprocessing in the brain. And then therefore, when you're Sealed, it's that you believe fundamentally, you really truly believe, not just with your mind, but with your body. Because we know sometimes our minds will say, like, of course I'm a good person. But actually, you know, I, in my body, I, I'm experiencing a lot of anxiety and stress, control, stomach upset, tension, all these things that just tell me I, I don't actually believe that. But when we actually believe good things about ourselves, we act good, we make good decisions, we are healthy and that has a really positive ripple effect. So thinking about the world now, you know, I think the pandemic, the, the second pandemic you're in right now is a mental health crisis. Yeah, I agree. Uh, And we had a lot of people endure big T trauma, uh, sudden job loss, loss of I- income, um displacement maybe the things that came from that loss of life uh loss of health we also have an enormous amount of little t trauma uh little t trauma in that being isolated Uh, we actually saw you know we saw people die from the little t trauma of not having any physical touch with another person any close connection uh those types of things so the thing about little t trauma uh, or i call it woodpecker trauma which i think is a good visual you can kind of see a woodpecker just like what a beautiful bird yeah a tree we don't really notice right away the power of that woodpecker to take down an entire forest and uh, so we have to recognize that, those, that that pecking that little t trauma can have the same effect as the t trauma uh, and so we're in a time right now where i think and um, the, you know, the disaster, so to speak, is over, but we're in rebuilding and we have to rebuild our society, our communities with mental health as the, one of the key essential components to sustainability, which means acknowledging and recognizing that most of us, many of us are not doing particularly well Because we are still feeling the effects of isolation, of friendship loss, family member loss, not even loss of lives, but loss of, you know, how we interacted with people, Mm -hmm. Uh, huge amounts of stress, people acting out against one another. And now we're coming back into society and it looks largely the same, but it doesn't feel the same. We are not the same as we were before the pandemic. Absolutely, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh,
0: it's it's amazing to me that we're not our government is not putting putting more focus on mental health. It's shameful, and and to to even find a therapist is is very difficult uh, right now for people. And I realize that there are options with online, yeah. uh, and you know, but that's not the same. To me. I, I you know, I know that I, I think it's a good option if it's the only option available, but it is not the same as connecting with a therapist in person. Yeah, you're
1: right. I mean, I'm going to say, like, for online therapy, uh many of us just I, I actually did online therapy prior to this because of my specialization working with people whose family members have found and I could clients all over the world. Um but most of us, I think, really work very hard to uh, increase our skills. Um, it, I can provide, for example, EMDR therapy on movement, desensitization, we reprocessing therapy online to the same level of effectiveness. And what is so good about at, at being able to access online therapy is you really can't. It's like a home visit, it's like a old-fashioned home visit. Um, which is good when you right. can't get out of your home, when you have limited time, when you live in a remote place. If you're looking for a specialist like me and you live in a small community or you live in a small community where you happen to know all the therapists or they're your aunts and uncles. So there's really, really, really good things about online therapy. In-person therapy is incredible. You know, just because it and I and I love, you know, now having more uh, people, Toronto based people anyway, coming in person, Um, because there's something about, first of all, leaving your house. That's a good thing. I was just going to say that for I was literally going to say for me, it is the whole process
0: of it it's get leaving the house going to you know to a designated place to sort of have that safe space to share and to discuss and then you leave again and you leave feeling usually you leave feeling better because you you know you've got a plan now you've talked through some things you've worked through something so i love that you said even the process of going because that yeah. is how i feel
1: yeah you know what's interesting, I just um moved out of my home office. I had a beautiful home studio in my my Toronto detached Toronto garage. I remade fortunately before the pandemic into a four season studio. Um, but I just moved to you an know, outside of Fuck Fitness because I also need to have some separation between right. my work as a trauma therapist and you know, going home to my families. And some of the, the work I do is pretty high profile right now. For example, on the Peter Nygaard investigation and that we just it's just nice to have a you know, a little bit of separation. But the whole process of taking that time for yourself, even when you're going home from therapy or going back to your office, you have a little bit of a commute time. Yep. Um, and what, what I like to say to people or to people who are listening now about therapy is that, I mean, people often ask me, gosh, isn't it, your work must be so depressing. You know, you're like yeah. with horrible mm-hmm. stuff. And I just say, actually, no, because everyone who walks through my door or appears on my screen, are all, they're all very brave humans who have said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean out the junk drawer of my life. Mm-hmm. And that's what I kind of liken it to is we all have a junk drawer in our house. We stuff things in there. It's, uh, we'll just put that there for now. Uh, as long as we can close the drawer, for the most part, we're okay. We're still functioning. But every time we open it, the stress, the strain, the, oh, the, the overwhelm happens. And it's so great to have someone who can help you sort through and reorganize your junk drawer, and that's what therapists do. That's what we are. That you know, on a on a home visit, <laughs> I actually, when I was writing my second book, which, which is the story of a human trafficking survivor, Tammy Nagy, I am... Um, I mean, there's there's no worse income than being a best-selling author in Canada. I'll just say that. Um, so I operated a, a side hustle of a home organization stage, you know, with that, because I love design. I love fashion. All my work really is so gritty. So I have these pretty pastimes. And uh, it was like a home visit. And I could actually see how therapeutic it is when I would help, literally help people. Open up the junk drawer. We're going to go through this. Yeah. And so in therapy, you're doing the same thing. Um, and it has... It often feels worse before it feels better because mm-hmm. if you just picture, you pull out that drawer in your kitchen cabinet or or your kitchen island, your desk drawer, and you dump it all on the counter. Well, now it's bigger than ever. Mm-hmm. You know, now At least when it was in the drawer, you could sort of close it. Now there it is. It's all right. laid there. Um But the process of therapy then is to really look through that stuff and find out what really just needs to be thrown away? What is just garbage that, you know, we just need to throw away? What can be repaired? What can find a place? And what, what are the things, the treasures in there that you forgot you had? And that's a beautiful part of trauma therapy, is when we realize we have treasures, we have aspects of ourselves and our personalities that maybe have been clouded or have been damaged by what we've been through. And when you take those things out and shine them up because you're getting rid of other things, uh, it just becomes such a wonderful way to then operate in the world, in your family, in your relationships with an organized quote unquote junk drawer or treasure chest. I love Uh, that analogy. Yeah, You just feel that you can handle things a lot better. And so what I wanna say to people listening is uh, it is hard to find a therapist right now. I know I have a long waiting list I just brought on and I'm bringing on a new therapist into my practice. I recruit them out of other places where they're working, so they can be in private practice because private practice therapists we, um, you know, really put a huge emphasis on training and and specialization. Um, but if you can find a therapist or get yourself on a waiting list as soon as you can um, for when the time comes, just know that at the beginning you might feel a little worse. Uh, about everything that's in your mind, your life experiences, but you'll feel better by having uh, uh, someone to hold your hand through that process, someone to companion you and guide you uh, with with soft skills as well as the hard skills of understanding brain science and how things hold. You're 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 incredible. I literally cannot wait
0: to meet you in real life tomorrow. Um. <laughs> uh Your story, uh, you know, people can't see me, but my jaws was on the ground. I think for most of it, it's just incredible. So I can't thank you enough for being so open and sharing this with people and sharing your story because it helps when you talk about you know what you go through. It helps somebody else understand that they can
1: they can make it as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for giving you this opportunity.
0: Okay. We're going to put all of the links so people can find you and find your book and and uh, read all about this. And, and maybe, hopefully, if they're in Toronto, meet you for therapy. So thank you so much for joining me today, Shannon. Thanks, Candace. If you liked today's episode, please take a moment to share it with others. Also be sure to subscribe to What She Said Talk with Candace Sampson on your favorite podcast provider stay up to date with my newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace said. Finally, you can catch What She Said on the radio weekly in Toronto, Ottawa, and Surrey.